Now the Spirit speaking expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of the saints, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith, and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labour and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Saviour of all men, especially of those that believe. These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear. And as ever we trust that the Lord will his own special blessing to the reading of his infallible word. Amen. Well, this evening we are undertaking our sixth study in this first letter of Paul to Timothy. And God willing, it is my intention that after our studies in one Timothy are completed, we shall go on to consider the second letter to Timothy and also Paul's letter to Titus as well. And as I've mentioned before, these three epistles are often referred to as the pastoral epistles. Perhaps not only because they are addressed to some early Christian pastors, but also because they give us guidance as to both the qualifications and the responsibilities of pastors. 
And also, as I've mentioned before, both Timothy and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith, and both of them had pastoral responsibility. Timothy at Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete. And we know that Paul wrote to them with the intention of helping them to ensure that whatsoever took place in the churches for which they were responsible would be right and pleasing in God's sight. And in our studies, I trust that we will see the practical information conveyed by these epistles on many subjects, as well as vital doctrinal truths. In our last study a month ago, we considered the spiritual qualities required in elders and deacons. And I said then that the ministry of any church is to a large extent a reflection of its leadership. If the leaders of the fellowship are unspiritual, then this will surely be reflected in the effectiveness and the testimony of that fellowship. We saw in our last study that Paul provided a spiritual checklist of virtues to be looked for in those who lead, characteristics marking out godly teachers and leaders. Now, no man is perfect. We all have different strengths and weaknesses, but those who lead God's people must be seen predominantly to conform to God's standards, those laid down in his word. Both elders and deacons must be qualified for their offices as is laid down in the scriptures. We also considered in our last study how important it is to make sure that we use a faithful translation of the scriptures since there are numerous versions which are untrustworthy. Vital doctrines such as the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ have been under attack since New Testament times and we need to be aware of what's at stake. Regrettably, there are many believers who seem oblivious of the dangers of inferior translations, even though the scriptures themselves tell us to be on our guard against the introduction of error. So we must ever be on our guard. This evening we shall be considering the whole of 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we shall see some examples of departures from the truth which have continued down through the ages. We shall also see how Timothy was advised to combat error and to develop his own ministry for his own benefit and for the benefit of those to whom he would minister. First of all, we see Paul reminding Timothy that he shouldn't be surprised to see people departing from the truth. Paul wrote this. Now the Spirit speaking expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. In the parable of the sower and the seed, we see that there will be people who will show great interest in spiritual things, but who fall away, some of whom depart from their faith by going back into the world. But you know, there are others who fall away and remain in the church damaging the church by seeking to influence it from within, to encourage people to depart from the truth. Some who have fallen away are found in cults, 
since, as we've often observed, Christian cults have invariably been started by those who have departed from mainstream denominations. When Paul wrote of the express warning given by the Spirit, he may have been referring to that episode recorded in Acts chapter 20, when, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he warned the Ephesian elders of grievous wolves who would not spare the flock. And now, what was happening? Some in Ephesus were departing from the faith and seeking to influence others to join them in their apostasy. All false doctrine and practice is devilish, the result of Satan's influence, and this is why those who depart from the faith are described as giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devil. Satan will ever be opposed to the truth. We see how this was true from the very beginning in, in Eden, and we see it continuing in every generation. Now, Paul accused those men at Ephesus who, who have been influenced by Satan of this, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidden to marry, and commanded to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. False teachers have seared consciences. We might say they have cauterized consciences. Now, if you've ever seen an animal being branded with a branding iron and seen the smoke, as it were, rising from the flesh, this is a picture of someone's conscience being seared, whereby it is scarred and no longer attuned to the truth. Seared consciences allow men to be hypocritical, saying things they know deep down to be untrue, but propagating their lives to their own advantages. Do we not see this in some of those televangelists in America and elsewhere? Men who deceive others so that they might enjoy lavish lifestyles, unbefitting men of God. Now the lies that were being spread at Ephesus were with a view to convincing people that it was necessary for them to adopt an ascetic lifestyle if they truly wanted to please God. People were being taught now that it wasn't a good thing spiritually for them to be married and that they should also abstain from eating certain things lest they were to become spiritually polluted. Now, it has to be said that the Apostle Paul himself believed that it wasn't wrong to be unmarried. He was single himself. And we know that he is on record as saying that single people can have the advantage of being able to concentrate more on caring for the things of God. But the most natural state for men and women is to be married. And anyone who forbids people to marry is in great error. It appears that the Gnostics, being those people who claimed superior spiritual understanding, both believed and taught that marriage was a hindrance to spirituality. And there may have been Gnostic influence at Ephesus. In our own day, we have the Roman Catholic Church forbidding its clergy to marry, which has led to all sorts of sexual deviation. It's not wrong 
If someone decides for themselves to remain single for the kingdom of God's sake, but it's very wrong for someone to make that decision for somebody else. Now, as well as telling people that they shouldn't get married, the false teachers at Ephesus were also making pronouncements as to what people should and shouldn't eat. The basis of this could have been the teaching of the Judaizers. Although the New Testament clearly teaches that the dietary laws of the Old Testament were not now binding on Christians, there were those who tried to impose them on believers nonetheless. On the other hand, there were those such as the Gnostics who taught that material things hindered spirituality, hence their opposition to marriage and their opposition to satisfying bodily requirements by eating. Of course it's not wrong to fast, to abstain from eating and drinking for a time. In fact, it's likely that some of us ought to fast more often assuming that we fast at all. However, it is wrong to ban the consumption of certain foods, as was the case at Ephesus. And, you know, this can be the case in our own day. It used to be the case that Roman Catholics were banned from eating meat on Fridays. I'm not sure how rigidly that's enforced nowadays, if at all. But there are some who make a case for not eating meat at all claiming that vegetarianism is more spiritual than being omnivorous. Now, if any believer chooses to be a vegetarian, then we have to say that that's their business. Or we also have to say that it's not their business to tell us to abstain from eating meat. As in many places in the New Testament, the word meats, here in 1 Timothy, applies to food in general. But it's evident from what Paul says about meats that he has in mind that which involves the killing and the consumption of creatures who were once living. Referring to meats, Paul wrote this, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. The fact that he writes of every creature shows that it isn't wrong to kill any, which was what the Apostle Peter was told to do in a vision on a housetop in John. Although that vision was primarily to convince Peter that he wasn't to regard the Gentiles as unclean, it also showed that the New Testament dietary laws didn't apply under the new covenant. Every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Here we have a mandate for saying grace at your times, do we not? And as my dear wife often reminds me, if we have given thanks for something, then we ought to eat everything which is set before us without murmuring. Now we come to a phrase which strikes me as very relevant to Christian ministry. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things. Anyone who teaches the things of God in an expository fashion will have seen 
that the same truths are found in the scriptures time and time again. And so those who teach will find that although they will on some occasions teach some new things, they will also constantly be reminding God's people of things that they have already been taught. They will put the brethren in remembrance of these things. Now there are some folk who always seem to want to hear something different. We might say that we are like, they're like the Areopagans who always desire to hear some new thing. But are there not things of which believers need to be constantly reminded? This must be so, because do not the scriptures, which were written for our prophet, repeat the same truths over and over again. Therefore we ought not to be critical whenever we're reminded of something that we have heard before, but to be grateful that we are being put in remembrance of these things. If any man aspires to be a good minister of God's word, then he will appreciate the need for teaching his flock. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. Some ministers may have a great desire to be well thought of by those to whom they minister. Those who are godly ministers would much rather that they were accounted as good servants of Jesus Christ by the Saviour himself. As we see, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And in studying the scriptures with the aim of relating that which is learned to the brethren, a minister will be nourished up in his own son, Timothy, perhaps unlike some other boys who had known the scriptures since their childhood, had not fallen away, but he had grown spiritually to where he now stood, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine to which he had attained. Now in Timothy's day, false philosophy abounded and was inherently opposed to the truth of the gospel. And Paul refers to such philosophy as profane and old wives' fables. Perhaps equivalent in our own day to old wives' towns, but also to anything that lacked credibility. And we, like Timothy, are to shun or refuse to give any credence to anything that is clearly at variance, at odds with the Scriptures. If we in any way subscribe to superstitious thinking, then we will be straying from the truth. Then we need to discipline or exercise ourselves in our thinking to avoid so straying. Now, verses 8 and 9 of 1 Timothy 4 don't follow the normal pattern for what Paul refers to as true and faithful sayings. Since here the true and faithful saying precedes its identification. Paul could have written it in this way. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Bodily exercise profited little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. 
Self-discipline in the Christian life is essential. We are to exercise ourselves unto godliness. Now, it's not wrong to undertake physical exercise. Our human bodies are designed for working and they will soon deteriorate if they are not properly exercised. But it's much more important that we exercise ourselves unto godliness. Bodily exercise profiteth little, meaning that the effects of physical exercise are only temporary, they profit for a little time. Even the longest life is but a little time in comparison with eternity. But exercising unto godliness is profitable, since it holds promise both for the present life and for the life to come. The cultivation of godliness will benefit us not only in this world, but primarily will result in blessedness for all eternity. So it will repay us to consider how we can cultivate godliness. Could we not say that godliness consists of having a right attitude towards God and of rightly responding to him? We need to see what God has revealed about himself in the scriptures and to see from the scriptures what he requires from us in Christ. We are accepted in Christ and none shall pluck us from his hand, but that doesn't mean in any way that we are not to strive, to strive to live lives which are both useful and godly. We are to shun those things that hinder godly living and actively seek after that which will draw us closer to God. As we are taught elsewhere in the scriptures, all those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution and will suffer reproach. Paul wrote in respect of seeking after godliness, for therefore we both labour and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the saviour of all men especially of those that believe. It's because they trust in the living God that believers will seek after godliness. There were many inanimate deities that were being worshipped at Ephesus, not least of whom was the so-called goddess Diana. But there was only one living God. So do we both labour and suffer reproach in pursuit of godliness? Do we work hard at seeking to live lives which are pleasing to the Lord, irrespective of the price that we might be required to pay? The next time we consciously partake of any physical exercise, it may be that we will be prompted to ask ourselves if we take the same trouble to exercise ourselves unto godliness. Now in verse 10 of 1 Timothy 4, we have a statement which has been argued about throughout the history of the church and which will no doubt continue to be debated. Paul wrote that God is the saviour of all men, especially of those that believe. And there are different views as to what that means. Any view that we hold should take into account what is taught elsewhere in Scripture which means that we can quickly discount the view that this verse teaches that all men will be saved. Universalists believe that Christ died to secure the salvation for everyone and believe that God in Christ is, is therefore the saviour of all men. 
universalists therefore do not believe that anyone is ever sent to hell. But we know from other scriptures that that view is untenable. Another view is that this verse teaches that the value of Christ's death was sufficient to expunge the sins of the whole world, but that only those who accept the Lord Jesus as their Saviour will be saved. You may remember from our earlier consideration of verse 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 2 that those who hold this view believe that the ransom price that was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ was sufficient for all, but efficacious only for the elect. A third view is that this verse teaches that God is the saviour of men and women from all walks of life. And we have seen previously in this epistle that the word all in the scriptures can have that meaning. Those holding this first view believe that God, through Jesus Christ, is the saviour of men from all walks of life. But they can't explain how the remainder of the verse is consistent with that interpretation. How could God, through Christ, be the saviour of all types of men, and especially of them that believe? A fourth view, and the view that I believe may be correct, is that when Paul describes God as being the saviour of all men, he is just pointing out that it is by the common grace of God that any men or women are preserved alive at all. He withholds the death and judgment that all sinners deserve. He preserves us. And in the case of his elect, he preserves them eternally. Thus we might say that God is the preserver of all men and women, but especially of those that believe. Now, there is a verse in the Old Testament, in Isaiah and chapter 63, that may help us uh, in this matter. So Isaiah 63, and it's verse 8 of that chapter of Isaiah. We see that God describes himself there as the saviour of his people. Though we also see from the remainder of that chapter that he wasn't their saviour in a spiritual sense. We see in that chapter that he preserved the children of Israel whilst they were faithful to him, but fought against them when they rebelled. It's one of those things we have to make your own mind. Now the injunction contained in verse 11 of 1 Timothy 4 should be taken to heart by all those who are called to minister God's word and by those who sit under their ministry. These things command and teach. Those who minister God's word should do so with authority. They should be able to say, Thus saith the Lord. We see this confirmed in verse 11 of chapter 4 of the Apostle Peter's first epistle. He wrote this, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now, course this places a great burden on all those who teach since they must always seek to ensure that what they teach accords fully with the scriptures. Great responsibility but it also places a responsibility on those who are being taught since they are to receive what is being taught as the very oracles of God. Now this doesn't mean that those who minister God's word only ever, as it were, to be barking directives at their hearers, because that would result in a very unbalanced ministry. 
When we eventually get to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, if God spares us, we will see that Paul gives the following advice then. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And this shows us, does it not, that exhortation or encouragement is an essential part of any man's ministry. However, I trust that you would have noticed that there must also be an element of rebuking, an element of reproving, teaching and commanding. Now, it can be difficult for those older in years to accept any instruction from those younger than themselves, especially when a minister is younger in the faith. But those called of God to minister his word ought to be given the respect which their position demands no matter what their age. Paul wrote to Timothy, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And thus those believers at Ephesus were to accept Timothy's role irrespective of his, irrespective of his age. But in return, Timothy needed to ensure that he acted as any true minister should have. He was to be an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. There's no point in a minister preaching sermons as to how believers should be conducting themselves if he isn't himself practicing what he preaches. Ministers must be examples to those to whom they minister God's word. They must lead by example. We saw the qualifications for elders in our last study, and we can now add to those qualities, those things that are before us now. Ministers who talk the talk must also walk the walk. Now, we noted in our last study that Paul hoped to be able to travel to Ephesus. And in the same vein, he now says this, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Here we have three essential elements of corporate worship services. Reading, exhortation, and doctrine. And God's ministers are to give their attention to these things both in preparation and in delivery. Public reading of the scripture was something inherited from synagogue, synagogue worship, and the Lord Jesus Himself did He not set His seal upon that practice. Just as the Lord Jesus read from the scriptures and then went on to explain how they spoke of Him, so His ministers are also to expound them, also explaining how they speak of Christ. In so doing, they will encourage their hearers to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their salvation and to live lives in obedience to his word. And doctrine must be given its rightful place, contrary to the teaching of some people who believe that doctrine is only of secondary importance. If ever you hear of a fellowship where doctrine is relegated to a position of little importance, then you can be sure that trouble is just around the corner. 
Now you might remember when we considered verse 18 of the first chapter of 1 Timothy that I referred then to what's next here in the fourth chapter where Paul, we see, gave the following instructions to Timothy. Neglect not the gift that is in thee which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbyteries. There were many in the New Testament church who were gifted to prophesy. Men to whom God had revealed his will regarding the direction to be taken by the churches, including his will as to those who were to be called into the ministry and what their gifts would be. And we saw in chapter 1 that Paul char Paul's charge to Timothy to war good warfare was in line with what had already been foretold by other men of God. At Timothy's ordination as a minister, there were elders there who laid their hands on him as part of the ordination ceremony, and this practice is often continued today. Now we don't know exactly what was prophesied concerning Timothy, but I don't believe that some do that it was just a recognition of the fact that he had been called to the ministry. If you turn to 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6, you'll see there that Paul wrote these words. 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Showing us does it not that Paul himself participated in Timothy's ordination? It also shows us that Timothy did receive a spiritual gift when he was ordained, and some believe that he was specially gifted to expound the Word of God. It does seem from the book of Acts that spiritual gifts were imparted to men when the apostles laid their hands on them, and some feel that since the apostolic office no longer exists, there is no longer any reason for hands to be laid on men in ordination services. And this might be why my own church's constitution provides that, and I quote, it shall not be necessary to affirm that a bishop or elder or deacon should be set aside by the laying on of hands of the eldership. Whatever Timothy's gift was, he was told that he was not to neglect it, but that rather he was to take pains to exercise it. In particular, he was to absorb himself in his ministry, to occupy his mind with it, knowing that it would not go unnoticed. Paul wrote, meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Any man who engrosses himself in his work for the Lord will profit thereby himself. And it will be evident to others that he is so profiting. So Timothy and his ministry would blossom and flourish with the passage of time as he gave himself wholly to it. Now one thing that Timothy needed to watch carefully was himself. Paul said, take heed unto thyself, and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Now, we all need to examine ourselves constantly. 
to ensure that we are walking with the Lord. But ministers especially so, since, as we've already seen this evening, a minister must be an example to his flock. He must take pains to ensure that all his teaching continues to be doctrinally sound. And by so doing, he will not only profit himself, but also all those whom he teaches. As Paul put it, for in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. A minister, by assimilating his own teaching, will be preserved from the pollution of the world, from heresy, and also from any accusation of failing to discharge his responsibility all those who sit under his ministry. He will persevere to the end and will then enter into the glory with his Saviour's welcome ringing in his ears. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The effect of his ministry will be to preserve those who hear him from evil living and false teaching. And by preaching the gospel he may be instrumental in their eternal salvation. Well, as we come to the end of our study in 1 Timothy 4 this evening, I trust that we have been reminded of the importance of sound ministry. Those who minister God's word must feed God's people with what they need, which may not necessarily be the same as what they want. And the minister will also himself profit from a ministry which is profitable to others. And so may we pray that the ministry here in Tiverton will always be God honoring and always be faithful. Amen. Amen.